are um, going to now look at a couple of basic things that you should be doing right now that you know I want to bring to your attention. I don't know if you noticed it, but the very last thing she said, now if any of you are guilty of kind of whisking through that last day of homework and not reading all the way to the very end, okay? Um, some of us do that. I almost missed this. She mentioned, by the way, MPS, get out your at-a-glance chart and begin to develop this, right? As you all know, I swear by at-a-glance charts. Once they are filled in and, and developed like they're supposed to be with titles, it gives you information like who is your author, what is the author's purpose, what are the keywords for that particular book, and then systematically you go through on each of your chapters and title them, and you begin to look for segment divisions, so she gives you room. So you have a chart um, that's been provided for you in your appendix on how, uh, for an observation worksheet. I personally like to make my own on my computer, so that's what this one is. Uh, the reason I like to do it on my computer is because then I can go in and I can easily um, fix it or change it, right, without having to make such a big mess of erasing, which I do a hundred times sometimes before I'm done. But don't forget your, ob your at a glance chart. We're going to try to get to this column this morning, but I don't know how fast we'll get through chapters two and three. So just in case, I want to bring that to your attention. The other thing I want to remind you of is uh, Precept likes for you to get in the habit of making a keywords list that you begin at the start of, this is where you're right at the beginning, right? We're gonna, I think we're supposed to get through chapter 16 in this part one. Might be, I'm not sure if that's it, but I think that's it. And um, that means that if you don't start right now making your, your keywords list on some kind of a piece of paper that you keep with you and carry as you go along, what can happen is you start in chapter one and two and you mark the words righteousness or the word gospel or whatever. By the time you hit chapter 14, you've changed it and the colors are all different and the symbol is different. You've forgotten. This is why you want to do one of these. If, if you want continuity or consistency from beginning to end, this little key thing here is going to be important to you. It's just a, a habit you have to develop. So I'm just going to remind you, make your, you can do it on a scrap piece of paper if you want. But I do it on my computer because I do everything on my computer. Um, but then I start penciling it in too. Once I start it, often I go in and just write over it. But if you'll mark it on this sheet and carry this with you along as you're moving through doing your homework from one lesson week to the next, you will be so thankful. So I'm helping you learn good habits, like brushing your teeth and flossing, right? Okay. All right, so those are the two primary things that I wanted, or three basic things I wanted to talk to you about this morning that has more to do with kind of the inductive Bible study processes, the things that you're trying to develop and, and, and build good habits of, and also to explain to you some of the things that maybe have not been thoroughly explained yet in your in your homework. Maybe we're not quite there yet, but hopefully we will be. All right, so now we're ready to, to dig into our, our um, homework this week. So we started with an observation in Luke 2, followed after we did that 
chapter 1. Let's just by way of review remind ourselves, what did we see in chapter 1? What did we see in chapter 1? What happened? What was the title of chapter 1? Right. Okay, both, both men, their conceptions were recorded for us, and it was the record that was given in such a way that it was documented and it was validated or witnessed even by various people as you went along. Did all of you no happen to notice that when we did our, home, our chart, homework chart last week that one of the things that happened is it would give a declaration on the whole about the major event, what was going on, like for instance, the appearance of an angel to Zacharias in the temple. He's told he's going to have a son. And then what happened is it very systematically gave you responses of the different people groups that were in the, the presence of that man's life and the event of that. It told you how Zacharias responded. It told you how his wife responded. It also told you how the people who had been in the outer court responded, right? When you moved to the next paragraph, basically, where you see Mary and the announcement to Mary, again, you see response, resp her responses mostly, but then also Elizabeth, who then, what does Elizabeth do when she sees Mary come to her uh, to visit? And, what, and why did Mary go to her to visit? Right, okay, so she went, so then why do you think she very hurriedly went to see Elizabeth? Right. So why do you think she went? So why do you think she went? <laughs> okay. Support. Okay. So first of all, the whole announcement itself was kind of a bit of a shock and a and a bewilderment, and, and, and Mary did believe, but so why do you think she went then? There you go. Very nice job. She did. She went there to confirm, and I want to tell you something. This is a biblical principle that God teaches us I throughout Scripture about the, the idea that you are to hear the Word of God, but then you're to confirm it, right? What do we hear about in Acts when he, when he speaks about the Bereans being of more noble-mindedness than the Thessalonians? Why was that? Why were they of more noble-mindedness? There you go. They, they received the word, he says, with thanksgiving and with eagerness, but then they turned around and double-checked to make sure that what they were taught was truth, was accurate. That is noble-mindedness. So Mary, in many ways, was being noble-minded. It doesn't say that in there, but you can take the principle of why did she go? Well, she went because, first of all, I think she fully believed it. And she was so excited because it was a miraculous thing and it shouldn't be happening. She had to see it for herself. And when she got there, not only did she get to confirm that what the angel had told her about Elizabeth was true, but what did Elizabeth do for her? 
she confirmed her. Isn't that amazing? So it was like a double confirmation. And Elizabeth, I mean, the t uh, according to the, re the record that we have, there wasn't even conversation that went on between the two yet. And Mary would have been so early in her pregnancy, not yet showing, because she went immediately. It says she hurried and went within a matter of weeks, at least, if not sooner, she went to see Elizabeth. And so when she got there and entered into that place where Elizabeth was, Elizabeth immediately makes a divine um, inspiration declaration that she was the mother of her Lord and in her womb was that child and so when Elizabeth said that to her it confirmed right so here we have these this miraculous event that's occurring we have on both sides she gets confirmed that what the angel told her was true because what is um is it in Ephesians 1 that talks about if an angel even an angel should come to you and speak to you or give to you a gospel other than what I have spoken, what? That angel is to be accursed. You are to totally reject that. But in Mary's case, she had an angel come, appeared to her, gave her a declaration. What did she go do? She confirmed it. And when it was true, what is one of, what is the essential way of, knowing that if a prophetic word is given, that it actually is from God. If it happens, fulfillment. So by her going and confirming the fulfillment of what was told to her in a distant place, right? And when she arrives, it was true. First of all, the whole thing was a, a miracle that she was even pregnant. Now she's confirmed it. She's also confirmed that what the angel said to her was true. So now she has confirmation in her heart to believe the rest that the angel has said to her, and Elizabeth confirms it as well. That, isn't that a, just a beautiful layout? Now, this is what our author is doing for us in this record. In um, chapter 1, the opening four verses, tell me what you remember about the, um, the author's purpose and the author's work in developing or, or coming to this writing that we are enjoying. Okay. So he has Okay. So he investigated everything. He compiled the account. It, and by the way, it is uh, things that have been accomplished among us. So he's saying that these are things that are already done, past tense. So he's recording something that's already happened. And it talks about him investigating. And who is it that he investigated through? The th that's right, the th from the eyewitnesses themselves. So this is a very strong credentialing opening passage for our author. And so we keep all that in mind. Then uh, when Kay asked us about the authority then also of the word of God that we are reading, because trust me, there are plenty of people who refute everything that you and I study. They do not believe it's true. And every single thing that they come against that looks like it's a contradictory kind of statement, they want to argue with you about whether it's really true. Well, it can't be true because 
you know, especially when you come into, it seems like, the datings and the names of certain people and who was where and what and why and how, right? What have you and I come to see as Christians through the, through the time that you all have walked with God? Has God shown you anything um, concerning who it is that you need to trust when it comes to the word of God? And, and why? What tends to happen with these arguments of men? Yeah, and voila. I'll All right. So the confirmations often come, and um, when they say, well, it can't be true because this never happened, or it doesn't happen that way, or, you know, I, I even think about things like when we studied Genesis and we talked about a simple cell and how in, in early years they used to talk about how, th you know, there was evolution versus creation, right? And, and they were talking about the simple cell and he's going, there's nothing simple about it. It's very complex. We've come to learn that quality of science. How? We've gotten smarter. Our technology's gotten better, right? So what happens is, Every turn you and I come up against right and left, and if, I, even if we can't argue with people about the specific details of things, even if we don't know all the scientific terms and how to unwrap it for them and lay it out piece by piece, what you can say quite easily to anyone who wants to object to things that are in the Word of God that they see as contradictions or as, or as errors as they want to call them, is this. Man changes their mind. Science changes. Archaeological dig finds. Uh, uh, every single time with concerning God's word, it's, been, it's confirmed. Have we ever seen a time when God's word has been proven in error? No. There's the speculations that it's in error. But as time goes, uh, every time God gets proven to be true. So that is something that is an, a is an absolute, and for you and I also as students of God's word, as we are going through a book like Luke, and we hit things that we get confused on, I have said to you last week there are two pillars that we stand on. Number one, what? Never violate known doctrine. So the doctrines that you, are, that you know are absolutes about who is God, who is man, Some, uh, subjects like salvation, what you know to be true about that or about sin or about anything like that. Those known doctrines, those things which are very commonly understood, you hold fast to those so that if anything comes up in the word of God that's a contradiction to that, you know that you know what you know and you're looking at that thing that looks confusing to you and what you can say to yourself is, self, I just am missing something here. I need to know a little bit more. Don't let it stumble you and frighten you and cause you, you know, consternation over it. You need to just fall back on the known doctrine is this, so I obviously am not understanding that fully. There's something more to that that I need to work out. And that is going to be a gem for you in your life. The other one is um, what? But never violate known doctrine and... Context. Let context rule for interpretation. So 
Um, sometimes context can mean what is said before and after, but sometimes context is actually historical information that you need to research and dig out. This is why Kay had us looking this week at the subject of baptism. Because if once you go into baptism and do a little research about uh, Jewish baptisms, you're going to have a better contextual background to fall on and understand what was going on when those records were given to us about baptism. Okay, so now with all that said, let's start. Chapter 2. What did we see? What is the major event in Chapter 2? That's right, major event is Jesus is born. Now, concerning Jesus being born, what are some of the significant points that this author drops that apparently he thinks are essentials for this storyline? Yes. Okay, they are from the family of David. So Joseph... Very good. Okay, Joseph and Mary... Um, I'm going to put on here the rest of it, too. Travel to Bethlehem. Because they are of the house of David. Now, we just spoke about, about this kind of information the house of David, Bethlehem, traveling from Nazareth down, that Joseph and Mary are connected to the lineage of David. All these things are important. And why do we see that these are important points? Can you see that? Can you see an, uh, an insight into this right now? Go ahead. It's all fulfillment. So he drops these in here not because they're arbitrary and not because it's, you know, sometimes, <laughs> I don't know about you, but sometimes I remember getting letters. I have an, an elderly uncle who's now passed away, and I miss his letters. But every one of his letters were filled with, it's 9.45 a.m., I just had my breakfast, and this is what, it, and the weather outside is this, right? And sometimes you're thinking, oh, you know, but... But sometimes in the Word of God, you have to understand that those details, if they're given, they're important. And so fulfillment of Scripture is written all over this. S fulfillment, fulfillment, fulfillment. There's like two or three things in, in that one little statement there of fulfillment of Scripture. Okay, so that's in verse 4. Um, what else do you, did you see uh, in there? What caused them to have to travel? A census. Now, isn't that interesting? He devotes quite a bit of time to explaining about Caesar Augustus and how they were supposed to go there and why that is. Does anybody know, did anybody look up that word decree? Yeah, a decree is not to be broken. I remember, um, was it... Um, Micah? We, d we were doing an Old Testament one. We talked about decrees. Maybe it was uh, also in Daniel. D yeah, okay, Daniel. And I just, well, I kind of remember it also from the, the ones when they were getting ready to go back, uh, back to Jerusalem, and they had all these things they had to do. But the decree, a decree is something that it's like an order or an ordinance or a law that's imposed and enforced. You don't get to opt out. 
right? So there's a Caesar gives them this order, basically. That's what got them to go. Can you imagine? What do you think about Mary going down there, Mary and Joseph? Do you think, had there not been a decree that is enforced and is, you know, compliance must be adhered to, do you think they would have traveled? There you go. See, isn't this just, the whole thing is just this miracle, miracle, miracle. And again, how, how did it come to be that they traveled? They traveled because a census had been decreed. But these were Romans. That's exactly right. It was there. And had it not been for them doing this, Mary never would have traveled at that time. It, it just wouldn't have happened. All right, anything, what else do we learn about that, that birth that might be profound or significant? Okay, all right, all right, that, well, yes, and I kind of mentioned it that there's a census was decreed, but, okay, Corinne, now why would that be significant and important? How can that help build this witness or this testimony for us? Okay, yeah, there's about, as, as long as there is record, <laughs> it could be, right? Now, uh, you know, this is where sometimes things fall through the crack for some periods of time until man has more discoveries, more archaeological finds or so forth. Did you guys know that King David was even disputed up until not that many years back? For years they, did, they debated whether he was kind of a fictional person, I'm thinking, wow, as profound as King David is to Israel, the nation, they were arguing for years and years because they had no evidence until one day a, one of those large tractor things fell through a, uh, um, a sinkhole, basically, in the streets of Jerusalem. And when they fell into the sinkhole, they discovered a seal that had King David's name on it. Voila, so here's the, here's the storyline on that. For years, the unbelieving world says, never happened, He's not, it's not true, we have no evidence of it, so it didn't happen, you're wrong, your scriptures are a lie. Now, now we have evidence. See, this is, this is the exciting thing for, for us as Christians is to say, every time God's word is proven to be true. Wait long enough, give it time, it's true. So for us who are in faith, who have already come to believe God is true, what is it that this does for you and I as we study things like this, historical records, and the mention of certain names and certain people in certain places, what is it that we can absolutely know for certain that is true? And that is exactly how he opens Luke for us. He says these are, these are written so that you may know the exact truth about the things that have been fulfilled. Okay, so s the census was decreed. There was a certain uh, Caesar who was in place. Did you guys do any research on the Caesars? Okay, good. Whew. Okay, yeah, I know. It was too much. <laughs> I, d I did a little, but I, I got to say I did it lightly. Okay, now then another point is given to us about this baby. What? He is a firstborn son, and apparently this is an important factor, that he is a firstborn, and then what does she do with this newborn tiny little baby? 
and put him in a manger. Isn't that m amazing? He was born, okay, a baby, born and laid in a manger. Okay, so here we have some significant points about his, his coming, his birth. Now, we've already had the, the previous chapter lay out for us the supernaturalness of his coming and how it was announced by an angel. And it was a virgin that was, to, that was uh, conceived by the Holy Spirit. And so now we're, we're moving forward. We see now Jesus is born. And all kinds of specific prophecies are being fulfilled as the record is being given to us. And for uh, you and I, it's a little harder to kind of grab a hold of, but certainly for a Jewish-minded person or a person like, um, um, I've forgotten his name, Theophilus. <laughs> I wanted to say Tychius. I'm going, no, that's the, that's the other chapter. Uh, Theophilus, for Theophilus to be receiving this information as he's doing so, if he has been given these ancient records and has been taught of these ancient records, everything that's coming to him from this written record, he's going in his mind, tick, 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 check, 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 check. These are true. These are fulfilling things. I've heard this before. This is amazing. Look at all the things in one little scenario. And how did that ever happen? This had to be a mind-blowing thing to, to read just this one tiny little, verses 1 through 7 had to blow someone away if they were knowing that this is all being fulfilled. This is the one who's been prophesied. Isaiah, right, back in the Assyrian captivity era, he was a prophet of God. He wrote about all these things. And now, tick, 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 wow. That, I mean, really, I don't think we fully... I think we read these stories so much that they become kind of, you know, mundane to us a little bit, and we don't mean to, but I do think that it does not hurt for us mo every now and then just to stop and really be amazed at what happened just by this one tiny seven verses of a record. I know the yeah yeah you would think that their eyes would be open I used to I remember the first time I went um, to Israel on a trip um, when I saw the the temple mound and how the temple was not there there was that dome of the rock there now and I, I used to think to myself how could that not be a convincing evidence to them that the Messiah had come and that it was no longer needed because the sovereign God of the world who can speak and it just happens. And, and so why would he not be able to protect his temple if it were still necessary, right? And yet the fact that it's no longer there should be a daily evidence to them. Their eyes are so blinded they don't see that. Right. So, I, you know, I got to give him a little bit of credit for when the volcano shows up on the news, that's when they say it's a natural disaster. Yes, right. Okay, th 
That's exactly right. So if you couple the two prophecies, I would imagine prior to it happening, Susan, that's when the confusion should have been there. Because one prophecy said he's going to be a Nazarene. The other one said he's going to be born in Bethlehem, Ephrata, and also of Judah and of the lineage of David and all these things. And so to me, after the fact, with something like this record laid out succinctly for them with the economy of words and the exact points that needed to be brought up, all laid out in one little tiny basket of seven verses, for them to look at that and to be able to say now af afterwards, not you're right, not as it was happening, but afterwards to go back for the Jews of today to look at this and not say, wow, how did a person, how did a baby that his mother was living <laughs> in the north in, uh, in Nazareth, how did she end up in Bethlehem and fulfill that prophecy? Well, guess what? A census was decreed. Now, oh gee, coincidence? I think not. I mean, it should begin. Yeah. Right. And you know, yes. And the one thing that we haven't factored in here in our reason, because we don't, we're not going to dig as, as deeply as as we could on this. But the, this decreeing of a census and the counting of the people, this took place over a, several years, a period of time. There was parts of it that was fulfilled earlier on and then other parts of it that were taken care of later. And so it was a progressive thing. But the fact that she shows up in the exact time when it was necessary for her to be there so that she was able to comply with it but also then gave birth and fulfill both things where in years pre, if you move down the history line before, I should go this way because you guys are in the other way. So if you go down the history line and before, then y people looking at these two statements by a prophet saying, well, how can that be? You can't be in two places at once. But then it gets fulfilled like this. Wow. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Okay. So now let's move to the next part. So this lays down the major event. Now let's move to the next part. Now, we have s major characters that show up here, right? I'm going to put on here major characters that are now presented besides Jesus, obviously, that major event that Jesus is born. Now, who are the major characters that you saw in chapter 2? Can you tick them off for me just real quickly? We see shepherds. An angel that appeared to them, Simeon, Anna. Okay, so, and then uh, as a matter of fact, I don't know if you noticed it or not, but there's another witness that gets thrown in here right at the close of it. And who is he? I'm just going to, uh, one more part. As you close out the, the last part of it, which is after verse 38. Hold on, let me look because I forgot to write it on my chart. Um, it 39 to uh, to the end to 52 is about who? About Jesus himself. So this is very interesting because what we are looking at, remember, is a record of witnesses, correct? So these are the witnesses. We see the event is laid out. 
this is Jesus. This is when he was born. These are the qualifiers that you can uh, give for checks and balances. Certain Caesars were in place. A census was taking place. Uh, certain signs were, were significantly given, such as being in a manger, right, and being a baby put in a manger. Now, that's profound because I don't know if you looked into that at all, but I'm sure you did in your homework. So it, when you put all that together, now follow that event in this chapter he gives you witness after witness after witness after witness to confirm this is who this was now let's look at it from that perspective first we had the shepherds some major characters who are I'm going to put on here witnesses and I'm going to give yourself myself a little horn this is my my symbol I use whenever I mark my observation worksheet so that I, I have something, like if it's a prophet, I'll use that symbol. Um, if it's any time where it says, and thus saith the Lord, you know, if it's a proclamation that's being made, I want to pay attention to what was said in that, especially if it's something that gets repeated, repeated, repeated. Do you see a repetition in this book where someone makes a proclamation and then the next person's introduced and they make some kind of a proclamation? Correct? So that's what we're seeing right now in chapter 2. So we're going to start with the, the shepherds. The first thing, what did you see about the shepherds? Just tell, we're not going to write all the details. I'm going to hit the bullet points on it because I don't want to take up too much time writing here. Okay, that's really cool. They're in the fields. Now, how much details it gives to us about this deal that they're out in the fields? Uh-huh. They're, they're in the fields. They're in the same, what? Region. So what does that tell you? Ah, Bethlehem. And what's Bethlehem near? So what does that tell you about these sheep that these shepherds are watching? Probably. They are probably these sheep that are being used in the temple for sacrifice. Never thought of that, huh? I didn't either. I heard it on a sermon. So I won't take credit. But all of a sudden I went, oh my gosh, that's so true. Never. Interesting. Does that kind of maybe even give a little more understanding about the why the angels appeared to these shepherds? Yes. But why some these some shepherds? Because they are the ones overseeing, watching the sacrificial lambs of the temple. And what is, yes, that was good, Martha, so, so carry on the thought. If they are the ones watching over the sheep that are going to be uh, sacrificed at the temple at any moment, because they're, it's in that time of year, what does that mean about these shepherds and who they come into contact with? The priests and any of the people who have come in right? Anyone who's come in to give their sacrifice, and if they've come in for a census on top of anything else that's going on, you're talking masses of people. So the shepherds are now coming in, and they're having contact. So th this, this angel appears to the shepherds. So that little thing in the same region, <laughs> if you did not double underline that with, the, with a little green marker like you do any of your location things, do it now because that w is a significant little um, point. Again, economy of words, but it, it's powerful. It means a great deal for, for who these particular shepherds are, right? They are the ones who are in that region by the temple. Go ahead. So 
Yes, it could have been anywhere in the camp. Right. It also makes a really good point in that they are also accessible to be able to do what they do following this. So the angel shows up. They're shepherds in the same region, same region of who? Of Mary, where she is now given birth. Um, they're out in the fields. They're, ke they're keeping watch over their flock by night. And um, the angel appears and says what? Don't, well, yeah, I love that. That's always what they first say. Don't be afraid. I, I love that. And I kind of wish we were doing an angel study, you know, when we do things like that. But every time an angel appears, what is the response of people? They're afraid. They're afraid. <laughs> so the angel says, don't be afraid. Okay, and? What's the announcement that they give, the proclamation? Okay, good. Now, what's interesting to me is this is a proclamation by angels. Now, first of all, that is in itself is supernatural, yes? But also it's a declaration out of the heavens. So again, we have a witness of angels. Now, who are the angels? If you kind of work this back to its core, who are angels? They're messengers of God. So if you, think, if you really take this back, what you're saying is these are witnesses who stand in the presence of God who have now come and spoke to the angels in a super, or to the shepherds in a supernatural way, and they make a proclamation, this is the Son of God. Okay? Would you call that a pretty, they themselves could be marked as a witness if you really wanted to make that on your list. I didn't, but you could. Right? So the angels themselves are make a, a witness. And once they make this declaration, he, he is the Son of God, right? Uh, then what is, what is it that he also tells them in verse 12? It's a sign. Now, why is a sign given? Did anybody research uh, this, the word sign and what, why that's a profound statement in this uh, record here? Okay. It, it can't point... They are, aren't they? They're always looking for signs. But what is the purpose of a sign? Okay. Okay, yes. Very good. So whatever it is, it's profound enough that when you see it, it will prove to you that what I am saying to you is true. So the angels were saying, I'm going to give you a sign, and this is your sign. Now, why was a baby in a manger a sign? Huh? <laughs> right. So we, she asked us to look at that. Look at the word manger, right? And, and, and what is a manger? What is the purpose of a manger? It's a feeding trough. Who puts a baby, think of you and your little sweet babies that we all had and our grandbabies. Would you put it in a nasty, dirty little oh? I'm sure that they did their part to clean it up and load it up with nice, clean hay as best they could. But they put him in a feeding trough, right? It's kind of like a, you know, you see in TV movies of people who are desperate and they open up a drawer and put a baby in a drawer, right? Uh, yeah, I know, me too. <laughs> we did that in hotels a lot. <laughs> all right, but, but y you have... Um, Something that was a sign giving. So these angels ga gave them a sign. Now, why do you think he gave them a sign? What was the expectation if the angel said, this is a sign for you? Ah, uh, sounds familiar, right? 
They're, they're just like Mary did back in chapter 1, what are these shepherds going to now do? They're going to go and confirm that what the angels said, don't just believe any angel. This is why in the New Testament it says don't believe any angel. But you need to affirm whether or not they are speaking from God or not. And so these shepherds now were given a sign that they could use to confirm. And then when they went, guess what? Voila, it was true. Isn't that awesome? What a cool thing. Now, the other thing that she asked us to do then also in, in that particular area so we don't miss it is to look at the word uh, Bethlehem because this is where Jesus was born. And she says there's a very, very interesting little um, kind of a, a um, what is the right word? It's like um, a supporting thought behind the idea that Jesus had been, to begin with, had been laid in a feeding trough. If that was not a divine appointment for him to be put in a feeding trough, I don't know what is. Why? What do we know about the name Bethlehem? And what do we know about Jesus himself and how this relates to the feeding trough in which he was placed? Okay, very good. There you go. That just couldn't happen all by us, right? I mean, the fact that he was brought to a city, by, by the way, by prophetic utterance from ages old, from the prophets of old, spoke of him being born in a city called Bethlehem, which means uh, bread, right? House of bread. So he's going to be born in a house of bread. He's going to be placed in a trough, which is a feeding place for animals. And Jesus himself is the bread of life. He, is, he refers to himself in, in future passages we're going to see where he talks about, I am the bread that came down out of heaven, right? Very cool. All right, so um, I, I put a couple of scripture verses in here. I'll just throw them out for you to take a look at later. John 6, 32 to 35, and 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four. I don't know if Kay gave those to us or if I did those, but anyway, one of us did. One of us brilliant people came up with those. <laughs> okay. So what we see then at this point with, these, with the shepherds, with the birth of Jesus and with what happened with the angels is he is born in the correct place. He is born to a virgin just as was prophesied. And he is born of the house of David also according to fulfillment. Amazing. Now let's go on to the next part of this. And after, so the shepherds, tell me what happened with the shepherds. They, they went, they looked, they found him. The sign actually was confirmed. They saw him in a manger, which was really weird, you know, like uh, totally and highly unusual, so that when they found him, they knew exactly they had found the right one. That's really cool, you know? Uh, okay, and what is it, it says then about these witnesses, these shepherds? What did they do? And, and how does it become that we can say of them they are now, they are witnesses that these events are truthful? What does it say about them? Yeah, so I put this little horn right on there, made known. Witnesses made known. Because that is exactly what they did. The shepherds, they made known. What was told them. about the child. 
pretty good witnesses, wouldn't you say? Excellent work there. That's, in, that's just the first witness. Let's move to the next one. Before we move into the next um, witness as far as the people, because the next one is going to be Anna, but before we see, um, or the next one's going to be Simeon, I mean, before we get into Simeon, though, in chapter verses 21 to 25, we have another paragraph with a significant point that's laid out, just kind of like the, the event here about Jesus is born is given to us on the major event. The next major event in, in this story is what? Mm-hmm. Okay, there is, a pr- there is not only an official naming of him, but what else happens? He, he has a circumcision. He's dedicated to the Lord according to the law of Moses. Isn't this interesting? So Jesus is actually presented, they say, in, in uh, I think it's in 21. He says he is, pre- he is presented according to the law. Let's see if I can find it. Eight days. Yeah, I'm looking for it. <laughs> 22. To present him to the Lord. There it is in 22. So verse 22. Let's get that up here. The next major event is Jesus is presented. To the Lord. That's in 22. All right. Now tell me what we learned there. His name. Did you do a, st- a word study? Okay. Isn't that interesting? That the, first of all, there's a, p- there's a part of the storyline there that makes sure that you understand that they, just like Zacharias had been instructed, they had been instructed what to name this child right, by that angel. Since all the angel presentation earlier and the the pregnancy, the miraculous pregnancy and and his birth itself fulfills scripture, it was all uh, witnessed between angels and different people that were present. All these things have happened and he's saying now, now when it came time to presenting him to the Lord at the temple, which is required by their law, when they got there, they named him exactly according to what they were told to name him. And when when you get that piece of the picture in there, then it's not like Mary and Joseph said, oh, we're going to name him Joseph, right? Which is would have been the normal way of doing things. Just like Zacharias, they kept thinking they would name him after Zacharias or one of the, f- the family members, right? But instead, he's named Jesus. And the name Jesus is number 2424. And what did you say it means? Yeah, Jehovah is salvation. Or God saves, that's another way of saying it. So he's named that specific thing. Now, what we know in um, um, Hebrew is names are given for a specific purpose. They actually tell a story or give a message about the individual, right? And so in this case, would you say that gives us a pretty big message? 
would it give a pretty good message and something that's pretty profound to the people who are reading this record in a day when that was the norm. I mean, uh, I can remember there was an Old Testament story that the person's name is, um, I think it was Methuselah, when he has come, it shall happen, or something like that was his name, right? Um, and then there are other times when it says, uh, it is Jehovah is my uh, shepherd, or, or Jehovah is mighty in strength, or, I mean, all and, he's, and we used, we, I remember talking in class about it, and the teacher said, can you imagine someone yelling at you, hey, Jehovah is coming? <laughs> you know, I'd be like, oh, that's so weird, right? <laughs> but that is, in fact, the way that they did things. The naming of people were named for a specific message to, to explain uh, basically the quality or, the, or the, uh, the concept of that person's life. It's in the, within their name. Okay, so then they gave some sacrifices, right? Why are those significantly important that, that they are mentioned in this record about Jesus's being presented to the Lord? Okay, number one, it, it kept the law, right? So they're sacrificing, um, and when they made their sacrifice, what was the specificness of their sacrifice? It was kind of unique. What is it? Okay, the pigeons show that they were poor. Okay, so there's an indication about why the pigeons, why the turtle doves. Okay. What about the sacrifice itself? Why were they making this specific sacrifice? What was unique about Jesus? Firstborn male child. This was the, the quality of the law that they were filling that they were doing, that they were being in obedience and compliance to, was this specific thing. So the fact that they went to the temple, there would be all these people who were witnessing it. This, again, affirms that they did it, right? So it's a, it's a way of, of um, validating that, yes, Jesus was born, and according to the law that pertains to the firstborn male child, right, the male child who opens the womb, this is what they must do, and this is what they did. Now, this is important because of what? Why is it important for us and for everyone to understand Jesus, in fact, was the firstborn male? Okay, for one thing, it would show that at least this is her first child, okay? The first fruit of the womb. Right, because what are the prophecies about the Jehovah is salvation? His name is, he is, he is the salvation. Jesus is salvation. So if he is our salvation, what do we know about our salvation? What's been prophesied to us about our salvation? That the one who comes who will save us will be a firstborn male child. Which is, by the way, why the entire temple system <coughs> was set up the way it was. What was it that was required at the temple? The first fruits, okay. The quality of the first, okay. A male, unblemished lamb. 
Are you seeing it? How this is why in the record of his presentation to the Lord, which is a, it's kind of, it is not just ceremonial, it is law. And it would be a record that would be kept. And there were all these witnesses there that were watching it. For you and I, we're, you know, we can miss so much of the richness of this whole statement here. But the fact that he's presented to the Lord is not just like, oh, we're going to go and have our kids baptized today. That's kind of the way we do. But for them, it's way more than that. It's an official record. It makes a declaration about, in a l many ways about who he is. His naming, the fact that the naming was given to him, his name is called Jehovah is Salvation. And so w when, uh, when he fulfilled that part, which was a name he didn't choose, his parents didn't choose for him he didn't get it later in life like Peter got a new name later right or even Isaiah he got a, a, a new name Jacob later right um, did I say that right <laughs> it was Jacob and Esau so Jacob so Israel Jacob became Israel thank you I did get it backwards didn't I oh, it's okay it's early all right, I'll wake up pretty soon. Okay, so the whole storyline of this being presented to the Lord is profound. It's a legal fulfillment of requirement of the law, and in the doing of it, he is checking off prophetic statements, prophetic utterances, prophetic um, statements about who this Jesus is that's being born as an infant. Now, if that's not enough, if it's not enough that he came to the temple, he is the firstborn, he has opened the womb. He has now fulfilled those uh, things concerning Scripture. He is also the, as I read to you earlier in Isaiah 41, he is the Redeemer that was to come. He is the, the Holy One of Israel that was to come and to save them, right? And so he's fulfilling these things. And if that's not enough, now it's going to be f followed with Simeon's pronouncements, right? It means Jehovah is with us. He is pre I'm going to put on, I, I wish I had room. Pretend I wrote down here, he is presented according to the law of Moses. Because that's important in the witness that's being, remember, we are getting the exact truth as a witness to us about the things that he has accomplished. Are you catching this? So we're following that author's purpose statement. I don't know. Did you look it up? Oh, I didn't either. It didn't catch my attention. Did anybody ca catch on that? You know, and the other thing it kind of says to me, Susan, is it's not just the, the a word of a prophet, but that the word of the prophet comes from who? God, the source of it is God himself. So, I mean, that could be also just a reinforce. It's kind of like making a statement twice from two different, in two different fashions, but reinforcing that it's God's word. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> it's a guess. Okay, so let's go into the next one. We're going to look at Simeon. Simeon's uh, pronouncement. Okay, again, we have Simeon, who's going to make some declarations to us, and this is his testimony. Now, what do we know about Simeon? Isn't that nice? I love that. I'm thinking to myself, I would love it if, 
in you know years after my death people would say she was righteous and devout you know wouldn't that be cool okay so he was righteous and devout and what was he looking for this is significant looking for the consolation of Israel did anybody do some work on that what does that mean pardon Uh huh. Okay. And why would, I mean, for you and I to say something like, I was waiting for the consolation of Israel, we would be going, okay, now say that in English, right? So how do we say this in English? The fulfillment of, okay, could be. I, in a way, you're, you're right, you're getting close. What do, what do the Israeli people, what are they looking for? And what does the word consolation mean? Comforter. Comforter. The, the one who will comfort, who will bring comfort, right? What did I read to you in Isaiah 41? I'm going to comfort my people. And he says, ha take comfort my people, right? And the Redeemer is coming and the Holy One of Israel is coming and uh, you know, I am going to be basically your Savior. So this is what they're looking for. So when they speak about the consolation of Israel, this is what the, the footnote in my word study, besides consolation, comfort, solace, that which affords comfort or refreshment, thus the messianic salvation. The rabbis in their terminology, in their lingo, it was a common phrase for them to say they called the Messiah the, the counselor or the comforter. Do you remember where Isaiah also says he shall be the prince of peace, the, right? I can't remember. The, was that Isaiah 9? 6? 9. Okay, 9, 6. Okay, I thought it was nine. Okay, good. So in there, in there, it gets down to that he is the comforter, right? And so rabbis call him the consolation of Israel. That's how they would refer to him, the pro prophetic one that was to come. It was another term they gave him. Yep, you could. You could actually say when he says the, con the cons I have seen the consolation of, and as a matter of fact, I wanted you to do is I want us to look at this. In verse 25, he says he's a devout man. He's a righteous and devout man. He's looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now when he drops down to verse 30, what does he say about this one that he's now seen? For my eyes have seen what? Your salvation. So what I did on my observation worksheet was I put a little box around that term, the consolation of Israel, and then I boxed in, my eyes have seen your salvation, and just drew a line to it. Because right within the text, it gives you the definition of what it means, consolation of Israel. The consolation of Israel is the, sal the salvation or the Savior. And, not, and who do they call the Savior? The Messiah, right? In the New Testament, the Christ. So isn't that cool? So here we have um, his pronouncement is, when he sees Jesus, when Simeon sees Jesus, he says, what? My eyes have seen the Savior, your, the, your salvation. And so, and at the same time, he also makes another comment then about himself. He gives us a backdrop to the fact that he has now seen the Savior. What does he tell us about what God had promised to him personally? 
Isn't that amazing? Does God sometimes do that for people, even today? Are there words that are given to some people in their lifetime? Um, Often it is to leaders, but it can be to anybody. That God is going to give a word to you. It's only for you, maybe for you. In this case, I think it was pretty profound, and it was intended to be a declaration, which it became as it did. Um, But does God still work this way? Does God sometimes give us a word, and he gives you a promise, and in your heart you just know it's true? You can't explain it. Maybe it hasn't happened yet, but you're just daily, daily walking in faith, believing God promised that to me. I believe he's going to do it. Yes? Do we see anything in Scripture that kind of backs us up in that, that says that, yes, that's a, that is a truthful way of looking at relationship with God? I've got to find my notes, but they're somewhere. Does God ever, do we see places in Scripture where, where uh, God says to us, to his devoted friends, to my friend, I do not keep things concealed. To my friend, I reveal myself. To those who seek me, I will be found. Uh, and that's not just speaking about salvation, but also conceptually it's speaking about to those who are devote, de- righteous, devout people like Simeon, like Anna, that God will reveal things to them. So do you believe it's true that God would reveal to Simeon something that specific that his, he would not die until he had seen this. Yeah, this is pretty cool. And he was looking for it. Daily he was in the temple and in the, in the city, and he was looking for that day when he would see the Savior come, the Messiah, that he would not die until his eyes had seen the Messiah. Wow. Yes. Yes, that he would show up as a child first, right? Which is also kind of a unique part, quality of of the storyline of the coming of this Messiah. Yes. There you go. Yeah, do we not have people in our midst that we feel that way about that? If, if they have an insight or a wisdom, a word of wisdom about something like that, that they say, well, no, I just believe this. This is why I believe this. Or, you know, God has spoke this to me. That you just trust them because they are devout, because they are really, you know, sincere. And you don't think they're wacko and nuts. You're just thinking, you know what, okay, we don't see it yet, but wait, Right? Just wait. God will show it to you. Okay, so he said that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. This is what God promised him, okay? And when he saw the Christ, he makes this declaration. So that the really cool thing is in verse 30 to 32, then what is his response when he sees the Lord? Yeah, he, he makes a pro- He prophesies. What verse is that? Okay. And what does he say? Okay. Um, I didn't get that that part of it down. How did I miss that? Okay, it's up there. Um, so he says, I have seen, well, he first he says, I have seen your salvation. Let's do, let's do that. I have seen... Uh-huh. 
your salvation. That's in 30. And um, I have basically, he says, therefore, I have seen the consolation of Israel, which he's mentioned back in 25, right? I'm going to put that on here. I have seen the consolation, the consoler, right, of Israel in 25. And then, he's, and then he says, what now for himself? Now what? Now he can depart in peace. Now I am released, he says, to depart in peace. And this is saying in the public arena, in the temple, he's making this as an announcement, as a witness, basically. So he's making a witness testimony that he is making the declaration, this is the, this is the, the Messiah, this is the child. Yep, yep. Yes, okay, and that's in verse 32. I've seen the glory of your people, Israel. The glory of your people, people, Israel. And that was 32? Okay, and go ahead, give us that definition again. The glory meant what? Wow, manifestation. Uh, manifestation of There you go. I like that. That's good. That's good enough. The manifestation of God. So this is the word glory. Wow, that's really cool. I I didn't do that one. That's nice. Isn't that good? Okay, so Simeon blesses his parents. He prophesies over the child, right? One of the things that he also then does is not only does he, he make this, um, I, I probably should put down here, he prophesies. That's in 30, you said 32. I'm going to put it on here. He pronounces up here okay so he pronounces this i have seen your salvation i have seen the consolation of israel i am now released to depart in peace i have seen the glory of your people israel right now he's going to prophesy a new prophecy this is very interesting because this is a man who is known as a prophet he is known as devout and righteous he is making a, a declaration that God had told him he wouldn't die until he saw this Messiah, the Messiah come. He sees it, he, he pronounces it, and then he turns to the parents and he makes a prophecy for them. Something specific and something relatively new. Now, what does he say about this? This child what? Okay. He is appointed for one, the fall 
and rise of many. Wow. Will he be opposed? And a sword. Will pierce your heart. Wow. Okay, so 34 and 35. I need another board. We don't have another board. <laughs> I'm in trouble. Okay. Um, okay, because we still have Anna and Jesus to get through. Okay, so he's our next witness. Our first witness were, were the shepherds. Now we have Simeon as a witness also. Now we're ready to talk about who? Anna. It's a shorter passage, and I'm not going to have room to uh, probably write a whole lot. I will give you the main point on her. But what we have is Anna as a witness, and I'm going to put on here Anna's claim. Because she makes a claim or a statement or a pronouncement, however you want to say it, right? Um, what does she say? First of all, tell us who she is. Prophetess, which is profoundly important, right? Again, just like Simeon, the Holy Spirit comes upon her. She speaks by the Holy Spirit of God himself as a prophetess. Um, it went into detail about the widow, and I don't know. I, it, it, did anybody do any extra work on that that they want to share about why that might be significantly important that she was a, a widow, quote, a widow indeed? No? Okay, we'll move on. She's been there forever. It just shows her the longevity and the perseverance and the long-suffering of this woman in serving God, right? She didn't move on to remarry. She didn't move on to do other things. She, st she stayed in the temple then being devoted to the Lord. No, that's not right. But she is, well, and also she's Old Testament. Well, actually, she is New Testament because Jesus is born. Barely, right? <laughs> the transitional point, yes, huh? And you know the olive oil is used in the lamp, and the lamp is symbolic of the Holy Spirit, and and and, and the, the uh, concept of okay, very cool. So there's all kinds of little subtleties in there. I didn't do a lot of digging, but that's okay. So we have sh we have the prophetess. She's a widow of many years. She never left the temple. Basically, she was that devoted. Served night and day in that temple with fastings and prayers. So what happens at the moment that she saw Jesus? Okay, so she began. And when she gave thanks to God, what did she conclude about what she was seeing when she saw him? That he was the redemption of Jerusalem. Again, what did we read in Isaiah 41? What was going to come? The Redeemer for the redemption of Israel, right? So here she concludes to, by speaking of him. And, and, he, and who did she speak it to? Isn't that interesting? So this is a public testimony. It's a witness that's being declared, just like with Simeon and just like with the shepherds. It's being proclaimed around town, so to speak, right? It isn't a private 
pr proclamation, it's and it's not kept just to herself, but literally it is the eyewitnesses, and the eyewitnesses are therefore going out and telling others. So it's not a private matter, and therefore it can be confirmed. Th that's why it was probably very easy for Luke to go in and find the eyewitnesses to a lot of these events and confirm. Did you hear Anna say this? Oh, yes, I was there that day. I, I heard that. I heard Anna say that, right? So there's a confirmation. So Anna's claim was, um, her, her, her proclamation here is she continued to, to speak of Jesus. Ugh, I ran out of room, arm room. Of Jesus um, to all who were looking for Uh, the redemption of Jerusalem. And what is that code for? There you go. Just like with Simeon, he calls him the consolation of, of Israel. She calls him the redemption of Jerusalem. So I'm going to put a cross here on 38, verse 38 redemption of Jesus, and up here on the consolation of Jesus, of Israel, I'm going to put also a cross. In both cases, it's making reference to Messiah himself. So they are both making that, uh, that statement. God blessed, faithful, devoted Anna. He oh, here's my, here's my scriptures. He discloses his plans to his children. I, I have several verses if you want to go and look. Cause we had both Anna and Simeon who are devoted people to the Lord. And it, uh, it's very apparent God had let them know ahead of time. And at the moment of her being there, because of her faithfulness and of her, her long-suffering in staying there, she was blessed with being a witness to it, Right? That's exactly right. There's so many. I couldn't find all those verses, but Martha, many of those verses came to my mind when I was trying to find them last night. And it was so late. Um, but I've got a few things here. For instance, John 15, 15, or John 16, 13 to 14. And, and I'm hoping I've got my verses right because it was late. <laughs> Matthew 11, 25, Matthew 16, 17. And 1 Corinthians 28, 9. Now, that's just a few, but the one that you mentioned, Martha, I don't think is one of these, but th that's exactly it. There are so many of them in there where God says that. Um, there's another one where uh, he talks about uh, Abraham, his friend, right? And uh, I remember when we did covenant, he taught that, that concept of friendship, being a friend of God. And what does God do with his friends? He discloses things to the, them. That he tells them beforehand. Jesus spoke of this to the, his disciples at one point and said, I tell you these things beforehand, right? So that when they happen, you will know. Um, so all of this ties into this uh, uh, witnessing of these two people who were devoted that God disclosed things to them beforehand and at the time of their happening so that then they would be testimonies and witnesses to what God has done. Awesome, huh? Okay, then we have one more, and this one's on Jesus himself. This is pretty cool. Jesus makes a claim too. He makes an announcement right there at the close. 
What does Jesus make a claim to in the closing statement? What does he proclaim? That God's house is my, he is my father. Uh, he said, of the temple, this is my father's house. Very cool, huh? Um, the people um, who heard him were amazed at his understanding when he was in the temple. So again, you have eyewitnesses. He's pre they are present. They see Jesus. At, at what age? How old is he when he comes into the temple here? At the age of 12. So often I have heard people say that when Jesus came, you know, he set aside his deity and took on humanity. Is that true? Did he set aside deity? No. What did he know even at the age of 12? He was the son of God. And when it came to his abilities to understand things, what do we see him do here? At the temple, he's amazing. The, uh, the experts and the scholars, these are men probably triple, quadruple his age, right? Years of experience in the word of God, and yet he is there listening and answering and basically guiding them to, you know, to the right place for their, for their own understanding. He's smarter than them. This shows you in a subtle way that he is still the omniscient God. He understands where he came from and who he was. Um, you think about times, for instance, like when he has, speaks to the woman at the well, and he tells her all things about herself. How did he know that? Because he's God, and he, kn he knows her. Also, you'd see things where he says, and he didn't, he didn't uh, uh, reveal these things to them because he knew men's hearts. So again, you see, God is still God. So right here in this particular witness point, where we're getting witnesses of what he is, he's making proclamation of, it was G Jesus the Christ, the Jehovah, the Savior, has been born. And he was presented at the temple as, as he was supposed to be, which fulfilled the law, right? Righteousness and law. He's going to mention that again when we get to the baptism. And now we have witnesses of all these things, shepherds, Simeon, uh, Simeon and Anna, and now uh, Jesus himself at the age of 12 confirms it as well. If it's not enough that there are witnesses, Jesus as a little child proclaims he is the Messiah because he's God's son. Okay, so that covers chapter two. We got 15 minutes to get through three. I think we can do it. I think I can, I think I can, right? It's going to be tight, but I think we can do it. Now, chapter three, major event. Yeah, John is the forerunner, or John prepares the way, right? Either, however you want to say it, in any of those things, he is the forerunner. He is the one, and a forerunner is the one who prepares the way, correct? So this is verses 1 to 20 we're going to be looking at at this point. And in, in this part of the, of the testimony, as uh, we see that what happens with John? <laughs> he does. Poor guy. He gets to what does it say in verse four about about him though that I think is really profound. You don't want to miss it. Yes. It says about John, he came into all the district around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins. 
as it is written. And then when he when they put that quote in there, as it is written about who? About John himself. So John's coming is recorded along with this, a scripture from Isaiah that shows you he's fulfilling it. Isn't that awesome? So they make in this, in this um, uh, accumulation of facts about truth that's been accomplished, they're showing you another accomplished uh, fulfillment of scripture. That John, who was already told you back in chapter 1, that he was the one identified even by his father at, the, at his birth, that this would be the one who would prepare the way, the coming of the Lord. It, it closes in chapter 1 with John basically growing up until he enters into uh, his public ministry. Now in chapter 3, it brings him back on the scene, and it says, Now, what did John do when he was an adult? Exactly what was prophesied, and they give you the scripture where he fulfills it. Pretty cool, huh? Okay, so we see uh, the event is that the John, but we want to say the most important thing about John in those verses 1 to 20 is that John came according to the words of Isaiah. He came preaching. According to the words of Isaiah. And that's in verse 4. Okay? So, I, this was interesting. He came. Did you notice in verse 4 it also says, He came as a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Now, obviously we know that he, ha he was literally in the wilderness, right? But there's another quality about this that I, I don't think is really brought very clearly to the service, but I want to bring it to your attention. What had been going on in the nation of Israel historically for hundreds of years prior to John the Baptist, the prophet, coming out, making these, these uh, prophetic utterances, and, and not only that, but coming as a prophet who is speaking judgment and turn and repent and how long had it been since they had had a prophet in Israel? Yes, there had been 400 years of silence. So you, you, it's a subtlety here, but you should make a note to yourself that the Gospels, when they come on the scene, when Luke is recorded, it breaks a 400-year span of silence. So when he says he came in the wilderness, as one crying in the wilderness, literally there had been a wilderness for 400 years, a wilderness of no word of God, no direct prophetic utterances from God to the people through a prophet for 400 years. So when he shows up and he's doing what he's doing, it really was profound. Do you think that the priests or the teachers in that day when Jesus arrived were doing anything like what John did? What was going on in the temple at that time when Jesus was born? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the system, the temple system and the, and the priesthood itself was corrupt. And it had been bought off. Even the priests themselves were not in their incorrect to the law, right? So you got to consider all this when it speaks about John showing up in the wilderness. This is like really profound. 400 years of silence from God, and now here comes this man, repent, right? Repent. 
And that is, that is his message. So from Genesis to Malachi, what was recorded? Well, from Genesis to Malachi, until there was 400 years of silence, God had given his people and us basically uh, the story of man's rebellion against God, right? Um, against our creator. And he gave us both the promises and the prophecies that God's grace was coming, that there would be salvation for us. So uh, that's just not all of it, obviously, but I'm, I'm just saying in generality, he had laid it all down for us, and then there was silence for 400 years. Now when, uh, when John does come on the scene and he begins to be a Jeremiah, to be an Isaiah in their midst, they had not had one for a long time. How many of us long for pastors to just get back up there and preach fire and brimstone once in a while? Instead of all this soft you know, passive kind of, I mean, I would just love for someone to get up there and say, we have got to purge sin from our midst. I mean, look at what we just came out of in 1 Corinthians, where we saw them, it says, purge evil from your midst. We, t we looked at in our homework this week about the, the feast of um, Passover, and, and then followed by the feast of unleavened bread, and what that symbolically all pictured, right? The idea of removing sin from our midst. You know, once you come into faith, you are expected to daily remove that sin from your midst, which why is why you're to daily confess, but you're also to call one another on it. We're to keep each other accountable, and we are not doing that. John entered into a world ten times worse even than where we maybe are. I don't know. Maybe it was the same. I mean, it's pretty, I know, it's terrible now. Look at the things that are going on now in our world. But within the church, we are even to purge right? We are to keep the, the household clean. And so here we see John shows up in this wilderness situation with it, the, his nation, and he begins proclaiming repent. So uh, he came preaching a baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins. So what was it that John testified when he came? What do you see? I think it's in verse six, 16. Go ahead, say it. Yes, that they are, that he is going to come, that one is coming that's going to baptize differently than him. He baptizes how? With water. But there is another one who is going to come, what? With, with, with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, did anybody actually work through that and exactly understand what was John really saying there? There you go. You are either, because when he comes with his winnowing fork, he is going to thoroughly thresh the household, thoroughly uh, thresh the, the threshing floor of humanity and of the earth, right? And not one person is going to escape his winnowing fork. And you are either going to be baptized with the Spirit or baptized with fire. <laughs> and the baptism of fire has is is meaning what? I, judgment, eternal death. That's what he's saying there. So, d you know, you don't get baptized with the fire and that's a warm fuzzy. If you get baptized with the fire, that means you're in trouble. But what he's literally what John is literally saying is Jesus is that there is a redeemer coming, there is a a savior who is coming, but he is going to thresh everyone don't think you can escape 
every single one of you. And as he spoke, who was he speaking to? All the people, to the crowds. I thought it was interesting that it broke it down, not only to the crowds, then it talked about who? The tax collectors. Isn't that interesting? Now, other, and the soldiers. And then he made real specific um, demands, so to speak, of how they could prove that, in fact, they had repented, right? Because, in other words, just because you walk into the baptismal of water and, and are baptized and make a proclamation this day that you're a changed man, that you have repented, but when you walk out of here, what should, what should happen? There should be the fruit of repentance. How does that relate to you and I then today in our relationship with God? Yes, that's exactly what it is, that your faith be proved, right, by your works. You know, you say you have faith, well, I have works. And if you have, if you have works without, if you have words without deeds, it's a dead faith. It's of no value. That's what James teaches. That's exactly what John is saying here. He is one who came to preach that there's a day of judgment coming, prepare for it, right? And there is going to be a judge who will appear, and he was speaking about the Christ coming. So his testimony was, I baptized you with water, but one is coming, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Um, and what was the result of that? He preached the gospel to the people, but what did he also do concerning um, uh, Her Herod, which, who was Philip the first? What did he say to him? You are. You're in big trouble. He reprimanded him, right? How do people feel about being reprimanded? On the whole, especially if they're not a believer, but even believers, do you like to be reprimanded? If someone comes to you and corrects you on something? No. But what was the, the response then? They locked him up. But how is this significant then to this storyline for us? That's right. When, when the one who came to prepare the way had done so, he was literally locked up and ceased. It ended. It was done. And then ex followed immediately on that was that Jesus did what? He began his ministry. Now, this is interesting. Did anybody have a problem with the fact that Jesus was also baptized? That when when John preached, he preached a baptism of repentance of sins, right? But then it said, it, may, it drops in this little statement, and Jesus also came and was baptized, right? At that same time. And then he entered what? His public ministry. Let me just show you something here. We're going to do it together very quickly. I want you to look at contrast. Contrast for me what is said in verse 20 and 23. What happened with John? Is put in prison. And that's contrasted with uh, what Jesus did then. Jesus began ministry, right? So one ministry ended and his began. That's our first contrast that we looked at. She asked you to look for contrast in here. Uh, then another one was in 22 and 23. What happened at the baptism of Jesus? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. It says, okay, heaven opened, 
And a voice said what? This is my beloved son. Okay, so, and that, my beloved son is who? Who is the my? Whose voice? God, okay. You are my beloved son. That's in 22. Then the next segment that opens up is the lineage, a genealogy, right? And what does it say in there about who his father is? And how is it stated? Ah, uh, Jesus is supposed Joseph's son. So this part of the record shows us clearly that there's a correction of thought being made, correct? That before the people publicly had seen him as, jo as Joseph's son, but the reality is at his baptism, a declaration is made, this is my son, and that declaration came from the heavens, came from God, okay? Now, and so then when it says about baptism, it says all the people were baptized, Okay, hold on a second. Let me, get, let me get these words down here, and then I, I'm going to listen to you. Jesus also baptized. I'm going to look on, the, on my uh, worksheet so I can follow you. Okay, Wh which verse are you in? Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. Jesus was also baptized. It's... Um, it, it lets you know that at the same time that John was still in his public ministry and they were being baptized, that Jesus came. Because then when you, when you compare it synoptically with the other Gospels, who is it that's present at his baptism? John is. John's not yet in prison. Right? So th that I think that may have a part of it. It lets you know that his baptism took place while John was still free. So... John was present to witness Jesus coming into his ministry and to see the declaration that although the world sees Jesus as Joseph's son, the reality is the heavens open and John himself witnessed, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. So he recognizes now. So what does that tell you now has happened on a, in a very public way because that's what baptisms were. What is now the declaration about Jesus? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay, very good. So what happens with baptism then in the Jewish custom of baptism, the subject of baptism? This is the thing that you have to research is the subject of baptism in the Jewish culture. There are many baptisms. Here's where I'm going to back up and say to you, remember the pillars, don't violate your known doctrine. If this baptism that John was offering to the crowds was the baptism of repentance of sin, would Jesus have engaged in that particular baptism? Why not? Because he's sinless. So you cannot say he is undergoing the same baptism that the crowds were undergoing. And yet he did undergo a baptism. 
So what you have to do is research enough historical understanding to say, okay, it has to be a different kind of baptism. It's baptism, but it's different. Yeah. That's true. So all the people were being baptized. Theirs was a baptism of repentance from sin. There was a ceremonial process. And if you do research on it, they did it all the time. And it was very common. E- even, in the eight, even under the old system of the law, they would go for purification and cleansing when they had sinned, right? They also did it for childbearing. They did it for all kinds of things, right? Right, there you go. So John makes a declaration. He's not worthy to untie his sandals because this man is that righteous. He, is, he recognized him as righteous. No need for baptism for sin. Therefore, the question that we have is, then what kind of baptism was it? Well, if you research it, in the Jewish culture, there's baptism for a million things. Often, one of the things that we, we know, even in our baptism in Christian faith, it's a change of identity. The point to it is, is to have show a new identity. We are now, we were under the the federal headship of being in Adam. Now we're in Christ. We are saying we have died to our to our sin and to our flesh, and we are raised to walk in newness of life. We have a new life. So um, that's what we do. His baptism was, he was being baptized into a new life, also a change of identity. His identity, when when you, yes, before he was Joseph's son, now he's got a new identity. He's God's son. He was before just a carpenter's son. Now he's going to be in public ministry as a rabbi, as a teacher, and most importantly, our great high priest, which what she brought up that at age 30, that's when you enter into the priesthood. That qualifies him, and that's going to be an important factor whenever the priesthood subjects come up for us, that he was baptized uh, uh, publicly, which which gave him this new identity, and it qualified him for the law. He says, these things must be done to fulfill what? All righteousness. So he did it to fulfill what was the expectations of the law, what was required. So he, the public um, baptism, baptisms came about when, when a mother became a mother because she had a new identity. When um, a person became a rabbi or a teacher or a, pre, a, a priest. When um, uh, somebody was given a new name. When, when they went through, at the age of 13, the, the bar mitzvah, they got their new name and they, they entered into the covenant of Abraham. They would go through baptism. So there are all kinds of baptisms. So although this is placed and nestled into the idea of there were other baptisms going on, he also had a baptism. It was a different baptism for a different purpose. But when you do your contrast, it shows you why. One, one person is passing away, but he has a new ministry. So because of this new ministry, baptism. Uh, he says, I am your, uh, he is my beloved son. Otherwise, people had supposed him to be Joseph's new identity. He is now known as the son of God. He begin, begins a new journey. This is the marking point through baptism. New identity, new ministry. Pretty profound, huh? cool stuff and it answers the question why did he get baptized he obviously did, was not for sin all right well we went five or six minutes over but we did pretty good considering that was a lot to cover we did not get into the genealogies maybe we'll touch on that next week 